Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. 2. An Antecedent and a Horror. 1. Joseph Cohen has revealed by the rambling legends embodied in what Ward heard and unearthed was a very astonishing, enigmatic, and obscurely horrible individual. He had fled from Salem to Providence, that universal haven of the odd, the free, and the dissenting, at the beginning of the great witchcraft panic, being in fear of accusation because of his solitary ways and queer chemical or alchemical experiments. He was a colorless-looking man of about thirty, and was soon found qualified to become a freeman of Providence, thereafter buying a home lot just north of Gregory Dexter's, at about the foot of Olney Street. His house was built on Stampers Hill, west of the town street, in what later became Olney Court, and in 1761 he replaced this with a larger one, on the same site, which is still standing. Now the first odd thing about Joseph Kerwin was that he did not seem to grow much older than he had been on his arrival. He engaged in shipping enterprises, purchased wharfage near Mile End Cove, helped rebuild the Great Bridge in 1713, and in 1723 was one of the founders of the Congregational Church on the Hill, but always did he retain the nondescript aspect of a man not greatly over thirty or thirty-five. As decades mounted up, this singular quality began to excite wide notice, but Cohen always explained it by saying that he came of hardy forefathers, and practised a simplicity of living, which did not wear him out. How such simplicity could be reconciled with the inexplicable comings and goings of the secretive merchant, and with the queer gleaming of his windows at all hours of night, was not very clear to the townsfolk, and they were prone to assign other reasons for his continued youth and longevity. It was held, for the most part, that Cohen's incessant mixings and boilings of chemicals had much to do with his condition. Gossip spoke of the strange substances he brought from London and the Indies on his ships, or purchased in Newport, Boston, and New York, and when old Dr. Jabez Bowen came from Rehoboth and opened his apothecary's shop across the Great Bridge at the sign of the Unicorn and Mortar, there was ceaseless talk of the drugs, acids, and metals that the taciturn recluse incessantly bought or ordered from him. Acting on the assumption that Kerwin possessed a wondrous and secret medical skill, many sufferers of various sorts applied to him for aid, but though he appeared to encourage their belief in a non-committal way, and always gave them odd-coloured potions in response to their requests, it was observed that his ministrations to others seldom proved of benefit. At length, when over fifty years had passed since the stranger's advent, and without producing more than five years' apparent change in his face and physique, the people began to whisper more darkly, and to meet more than halfway that desire for isolation which he had always shewn. Private letters and diaries of the period reveal, too, a multitude of other reasons why Joseph Kerwin was marvelled at, feared, and finally shunned like a plague. His passion for graveyards, in which he was glimpsed at all hours and under all conditions, was notorious, though no one had witnessed any deed on his part which could actually be termed ghoulish. On the Portuxet Road he had a farm, at which he generally lived during the summer, 
and to which he would frequently be seen riding at various odd times of the day or night. Here his only visible servants, farmers, and caretakers were a sullen pair of aged Narragansett Indians, the husband dumb and curiously scarred, and the wife of a very repulsive cast of countenance, probably due to a mixture of negro blood. In the lean-to of this house was the laboratory where most of the chemical experiments were conducted. Curious porters and teamers, who delivered bottles, bags, or boxes at the small rear door, would exchange accounts of the fantastic flasks, crucibles, alembics, and furnaces they saw in the low-shelved room, and prophesied in whispers that the close-mouthed chemist, by which they meant alchemist, would not be long in finding the philosopher's stone. The nearest neighbors to this farm, the Fenners, a quarter of a mile away, had still queerer things to tell of certain sounds, which they insisted came from the Kerwin place in the night. There were cries, they said, and sustained howlings, and they did not like the large number of livestock which thronged the pastures, for no such amount was needed to keep a lone old man and a very few servants in meat, milk, and wool. The identity of the stock seemed to change from week to week, as new droves were purchased from the Kingstown farmers. Then, too, there was something very obnoxious about a certain great stone outbuilding, with only high narrow slits for windows. Great Bridge idlers likewise had much to say of Kerwin's townhouse in Olney Court, not so much the fine new one built in 1761, when the man must have been nearly a century old, but the first low gambrel roofed one, with the windowless attic and shingled sides, whose timbers he took the peculiar precaution of burning after its demolition. Here there was less mystery, it is true, but the hours at which lights were seen, the secretiveness of the two swarthy foreigners who comprised the only men-servants, the hideous indistinct mumbling of the incredibly aged French housekeeper, the large amounts of food seen to enter a door within which only four persons lived, and the quality of certain voices often heard in muffled conversation at highly unseasonable times, all combined with what was known of the Portaxit farm to give the place a bad name. In choicer circles, too, the Kerwin home was by no means undiscussed, for as the newcomer had gradually worked into the church and trading life of the town, he had naturally made acquaintances of the better sort, whose company and conversation he was well fitted by education to enjoy. His birth was known to be good, since the Kerwins or Corwins of Salem needed no introduction in New England. It developed that Joseph Kerwin had travelled much in very early life, living for a time in England, and making at least two voyages to the Orient, and his speech, when he deigned to use it, was that of a learned and cultivated Englishman. But for some reason or other, Kerwin did not care for society. Whilst never actually rebuffing a visitor, he always reared such a wall of reserve that few could think of anything to say to him, which would not sound inane. There seemed to lurk in his bearing some cryptic, sardonic arrogance, as if he had come to find all human beings dull through having moved among stranger and more potent entities. When Dr. Checkley, the famous wit, came from Boston in 1738 to be rector of King's Church, he did not neglect calling on one of whom he soon heard so much, but left in a very short while because of some sinister undercurrent he detected in his host's discourse. Charles Ward told his father 
when they discussed Cohen one winter evening, that he would give much to learn what the mysterious old man had said to the sprightly cleric, but that all diarists agree concerning Dr. Checkley's reluctance to repeat anything he had heard. The good man had been hideously shocked, and could never recall Joseph Cohen without a visible loss of the gay urbanity for which he was famed. More definite, however, was the reason why another man of taste and breeding avoided the haughty hermit. In 1746, Mr. John Merritt, an elderly English gentleman of literary and scientific leanings, came from Newport to the town which was so rapidly overtaking it in standing, and built a fine country seat on the neck in what is now the heart of the best residence section. He lived in considerable style and comfort, keeping the first coach and liveried servants in town, and taking great pride in his telescope, his microscope, and his well-chosen library of English and Latin books. Hearing of Kerwin as the owner of the best library in Providence, Mr. Merritt early paid him a call, and was more cordially received than most other callers at the house had been. His admiration for his host's ample shelves, which, besides the Greek, Latin, and English classics, were equipped with a remarkable battery of philosophical, mathematical, and scientific works, including Paracelsus, Agricola, Van Helmont, Silvius, Glauber, Boyle, Boerhaave, Bescher, and Stahl, led Kerwin to suggest a visit to the farmhouse and laboratory, whither he had never invited anyone before, and the two drove out at once in Mr. Merritt's coach. Mr. Merritt always confessed to seeing nothing really horrible at the farmhouse, but maintained that the titles of the books in the special library of thaumatological, alchemical, and theological subjects which Cohen kept in a front room, were alone sufficient to inspire him with a lasting loathing. Perhaps, however, the facial expression of the owner in exhibiting them contributed much of the prejudice. The bizarre collection, besides a host of standard works which Mr. Merritt was not too alarmed to envy, embraced nearly all the cabalists, demonologists, and magicians known to man, and was a treasure-house of lore in the doubtful realms of alchemy, and astrology. Hermes Trismegistus in Menard's edition, the Turba Philosophorum, Jeba's Liber Investigationis, and Artefius's Key of Wisdom, all were there, with the Kabbalistic Zohar, Peter Jammy's set of Albertus Magnus, Raymond Lully's Ars Magna et Ultima in Zetzner's edition, Roger Bacon's Thesaurus Chemicus, Flood's Clavis Alchimiae, and Trithemius's De Lapidi Philosophico, crowding them close. Medieval Jews and Arabs were represented in profusion, and Mr. Merritt turned pale when, upon taking down a fine volume conspicuously labelled as the Kanuni Islam, he found it was in truth the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, of which he had heard such monstrous things whispered some years previously, after the exposure of nameless rites at the strange little fishing village of Kingsport, in the province of the Massachusetts Bay. But oddly enough, the worthy gentleman owned himself most impalpably disquieted by a mere minor detail. On the huge mahogany table, there lay face downward a badly worn copy of Borellus, bearing many cryptical marginalia and interlineations in Kerwin's hand. The book was open at about its middle, and one paragraph displayed such thick and tremulous penstrokes beneath the lines of mystic black letter, that the visitor could not resist scanning it through. 
whether it was the nature of the passage underscored, or the feverish heaviness of the strokes which formed the underscoring, he could not tell, but something in that combination affected him very badly, and very peculiarly. He recalled it to the end of his days, writing it down from memory in his diary, and once trying to recite it to his close friend, Dr. Checkley, till he saw how greatly it disturbed the urbane rector. It read, The essential salts of animals may be so prepared and preserved, that an ingenious man may have the whole ark of Noah in his own study, and raise the fine shape of an animal out of its ashes at his pleasure. And by the Ike method from the essential salts of humane dust, a philosopher may, without any criminal necromancy, call up the shape of any dead ancestor from the dust, whereinto his body has been incinerated. It was near the docks, along the southerly part of the town street, however, that the worst things were muttered about Joseph Kerwin. Sailors are superstitious folk, and the seasoned salts who man the infinite rum, slave and molasses sloops, the rakish privateers, and the great brigs of the Browns, Crawfords, and Tillingasts, all made strange furtive signs of protection when they saw the slim, deceptively young-looking figure, with its yellow hair and slight stoop, entering the Kerwin warehouse in Dubloon Street, or talking with captains and supercargoes on the long quay where the Kerwin ships rode restlessly. Kerwin's own clerks and captains hated and feared him, and all his sailors were mongrel riffraff, from Martinique, St. Eustatius, Havana, or Port Royal. It was, in a way, the frequency with which these sailors were replaced, which inspired the acutest and most tangible part of the fear in which the old man was held. A crew would be turned loose in the town on shore leave, some of its members perhaps charged with this errand or that, and when reassembled, it would be almost sure to lack one or more men that many of the errands had concerned the farm on the Portaxet Road, and that few of the sailors had ever been seen to return from that place, was not forgotten, so that in time it became exceedingly difficult for Kerwin to keep his oddly assorted hands. Almost invariably, several would desert soon after hearing the gossip of the Providence Wharves, and their replacement in the West Indies became an increasingly great problem to the merchant. In 1760, Joseph Kerwin was virtually an outcast, suspected of vague horrors and demoniac alliances which seemed all the more menacing, because they could not be named, understood, or even proved to exist. The last draw may have come from the affair of the missing soldiers in 1758, for in March and April of that year, two royal regiments on their way to New France were quartered in Providence, and depleted by an inexplicable process far beyond the average rate of desertion. Rumour dwelt on the frequency with which Kerwin was wont to be seen talking with the red-coated strangers, and as several of them began to be missed, people thought of the odd conditions among his own seamen. What would have happened if the regiments had not been ordered on, no one can tell. Meanwhile, the merchant's worldly affairs were prospering. He had a virtual monopoly of the town's trade in saltpetre, black pepper, and cinnamon, and easily led any other one-shipping establishment, save the Browns, in his importation of brassware, indigo, cotton, woolens, salt, rigging, iron, paper, and English goods of every kind. Such shopkeepers as James Green, at the sign of the elephant in Cheapside, the Russells, at the sign of the Golden Eagle across the bridge, 
or Clark and Nightingale at the frying pan and fish near the new coffee-house, depended almost wholly upon him for their stock, and his arrangements with the local distillers, the Narragansett dairymen and horse-breeders, and the Newport candle-makers, made him one of the prime exporters of the colony. Ostracized though he was, he did not lack for civic spirit of a sort. When the colony house burned down, he subscribed handsomely to the lotteries by which the new brick one, still standing at the head of its parade in the old main street, was built in 1761. In that same year, too, he helped rebuild the Great Bridge after the October gale. He replaced many of the books of the public library consumed in the colony house fire, and bought heavily in the lottery that gave the muddy market parade and deep-rutted town street their pavement of great round stones with a brick footwalk or causey in the middle. About this time, also, he built the plain but excellent new house, whose doorway is still such a triumph of carving. When the Whitefield adherents broke off from Dr. Cotton's Hill Church in 1743, and founded Deacon Snow's Church across the bridge, Kerwin had gone with them, though his zeal and attendance soon abated. Now, however, he cultivated piety once more, as if to dispel the shadow which had thrown him into isolation, and would soon begin to wreck his business fortunes, if not sharply checked. 2. The sight of this strange, pallid man, hardly middle-aged in aspect, yet certainly not less than a full century old, seeking at last to emerge from a cloud of fright and detestation too vague to pin down or analyse, was at once a pathetic, a dramatic, and a contemptible thing. Such is the power of wealth and of surface gestures, however, that there came indeed a slight abatement in the visible aversion displayed toward him, especially after the rapid disappearances of his sailors abruptly ceased. He must likewise have begun to practice an extreme care and secrecy in his graveyard expeditions, for he was never again caught at such wanderings, whilst the rumours of uncanny sounds and manoeuvres at his Portuxet farm diminished in proportion. His rate of food consumption and cattle replacement remained abnormally high, but not until modern times, when Charles Ward examined a set of his accounts and invoices in the Shepley Library, did it occur to any person, save one embittered youth perhaps, to make dark comparisons between the large number of guinea blacks he imported until 1766, and the disturbingly small number for whom he could produce bona fide bills of sale, either to slave-dealers at the Great Bridge or to the planters of the Narragansett country. Certainly the cunning and ingenuity of this abhorred character were uncannily profound, once the necessity for their exercise had become impressed upon him. But, of course, the effect of all this belated mending was necessary slight. Cohen continued to be avoided and distrusted, as indeed the one fact of his continued air of youth at a great age would have been enough to warrant, and he could see that in the end his fortunes would be likely to suffer. His elaborate studies and experiments, whatever they may have been, apparently required a heavy income for their maintenance, and since a change of environment would deprive him of the trading advantages he had gained, it would not have profited him to begin anew in a different region just then. Judgment demanded that he patch up his relations with the townsfolk of Providence, so that his presence might no longer be a signal for hushed conversation, transparent excuses of errands elsewhere, and a general atmosphere of constraint and uneasiness. 
His clerks, being now reduced to the shiftless and impecunious residue whom no one else would employ, were giving him much worry, and he held to his sea captains and mates only by shrewdness in gaining some kind of ascendancy over them, a mortgage, a promissory note, or a bit of information very pertinent to their welfare. In many cases, diarists have recorded with Samor co-ensued almost the power of a wizard in unearthing family secrets for questionable use. During the final five years of his life, it seemed as though only direct talks with the long dead could possibly have furnished some of the data which he had so glibly at his tongue's end. About this time, the crafty scholar hit upon a last desperate expedient to regain his footing in the community. Hitherto a complete hermit, he now determined to contract an advantageous marriage, securing as a bride some lady whose unquestioned position would make all ostracism of his home impossible. It may be that he also had deeper reasons for wishing an alliance, reasons so far outside the known cosmic sphere that only papers found a century and a half after his death caused anyone to suspect them, but of this nothing certain can ever be learned. Naturally, he was aware of the horror and indignation with which any ordinary courtship of his would be received, hence he looked about for some likely candidate upon whose parents he might exert a suitable pressure. Such candidates, he found, were not at all easy to discover, since he had very particular requirements in the way of beauty, accomplishments, and social security. At length, his survey narrowed down to the household of one of his best and oldest ship captains, a widower of high birth and unblemished standing, named Duty Tillingast, whose only daughter, Eliza, seemed dowered with every conceivable advantage save prospects as an heiress. Captain Tillingast was completely under the domination of Cohen, and consented, after a terrible interview in his cupolate house on Powers Lane Hill, to sanction his blasphemous alliance. Eliza Tillingast was at that time eighteen years of age, and had been reared as gently as the reduced circumstances of her father permitted. She had attended Stephen Jackson's school opposite the courthouse parade, and had been diligently instructed by her mother before the latter's death of smallpox in 1757, in all the arts and refinements of domestic life. A sampler of hers, worked in 1753 at the age of nine, may still be found in the rooms of the Rhode Island Historical Society. After her mother's death, she had kept the house, aided only by one old black woman. Her arguments with her father, concerning the proposed Kerwin marriage, must have been painful indeed, but of these we have no record. Certain it is that her engagement to young Ezra Wheaton, second mate of the Crawford Packet Enterprise, was dutifully broken off, and that her union with Joseph Kerwin took place on the 7th of March, 1763, in the Baptist Church, in the presence of one of the most distinguished assemblages which the town could boast, the ceremony being performed by the younger Samuel Windsor. The Gazette mentioned the event very briefly, and in most surviving copies the item in question seems to be cut or torn out. Ward found a single intact copy after much search in the archives of a private collector of note, observing with amusement the meaningless urbanity of the language. Monday evening last, Mr. Joseph Kerwin of this town, merchant, was married to Miss Eliza Tillingast, daughter of Captain Duty Tillingast, a young lady who has a real merit, added to a beautiful person, to grace the connubial state and perpetuate its felicity. 
the collection of Durfee Arnold letters discovered by Charles Ward shortly before his first reputed madness in the private collection of Melville F. Peters, Esquire of George Street, and covering this and a somewhat antecedent period, throws vivid light on the outrage done to public sentiment by this ill-assorted match. The social influence of the Tillingasts, however, was not to be denied, and once more Joseph Cohen found his house frequented by persons whom he could never otherwise have induced to cross his threshold. His acceptance was by no means complete, and his bride was socially the sufferer through her forced venture, but at all events the wall of utter ostracism was somewhat worn down. In his treatment of his wife, the strange bridegroom astonished both her and the community by displaying an extreme graciousness and consideration. The new house in Olney Court was now wholly free from disturbing manifestations, and although Kerwin was much absent at the Portuxet farm, which his wife never visited, he seemed more like a normal citizen than at any other time in his long years of residence. Only one person remained in open enmity with him, this being the youthful ship's officer, whose engagement to Eliza Tillingast had been so abruptly broken. Ezra Whedon had frankly vowed vengeance, and though of a quiet and ordinarily mild disposition, was now gaining a hate-bred, dogged purpose, which boded no good to the usurping husband. On the 7th of May, 1765, Kerwin's only child, Anne, was born, and was christened by the Reverend John Graves of King's Church, of which both husband and wife had become communicant shortly after their marriage, in order to compromise between their respective congregational and Baptist affiliations. The record of this birth, as well as that of the marriage two years before, was stricken from most copies of the church and town annals, where it ought to appear, and Charles Ward located both with the greatest difficulty, after his discovery of the widow's change of name had apprised him of his own relationship, and engendered the feverish interest which culminated in his madness. The birth entry, indeed, was found very curiously through correspondence with the heirs of the loyalist Dr. Graves, who had taken with him a duplicate set of records when he left his pastorate at the outbreak of the Revolution. Ward had tried this source because he knew that his great-great-grandmother, Anne Tillingast Potter, had been an Episcopalian. Shortly after the birth of his daughter, an event he seemed to welcome with a fervour greatly out of keeping with his usual coldness, Cohen resolved to sit for a portrait. This he had painted by a very gifted Scotsman named Cosmo Alexander, then a resident of Newport, and since famous as the early teacher of Gilbert Stuart. The likeness was said to have been executed on a wall panel of the library of the house in Olney Court, but neither of the two old diaries mentioning it gave any hint of its ultimate disposition. At this period, the erratic scholar shewed signs of unusual abstraction, and spent as much time as he possibly could at his farm on the Portuxet Road. He seemed, it was stated, in a condition of suppressed excitement or suspense, as if expecting some phenomenal thing or on the brink of some strange discovery. Chemistry or alchemy would appear to have played a great part, for he took from his house to the farm the greater number of his volumes on that subject. His affectation of civic interest did not diminish, and he lost no opportunities for helping such leaders as Stephen Hopkins, Joseph Brown, and Benjamin West in their efforts to raise the cultural tone of the town, which was then much below the level of Newport in its patronage of the liberal arts. 
He had helped Daniel Jenks found his bookshop in 1763, and was thereafter his best customer, extending aid likewise to the struggling gazette that appeared each Wednesday at the sign of Shakespeare's head. In politics, he ardently supported Governor Hopkins against the Ward Party, whose prime strength was in Newport, and his really eloquent speech at Hackers Hall in 1765 against the setting off of North Providence as a separate town with a pro-Ward vote in the General Assembly did more than any other one thing to wear down the prejudice against him. But Ezra Whedon, who watched him closely, sneered cynically at all this outward activity, and freely swore it was no more than a mask for some nameless traffic with the blackest gulfs of Tartarus. The revengeful youth began a systematic study of the man and his doings, whenever he was in port, spending hours at night by the wharves with a dory in readiness when he saw lights in the Kerwin warehouses, and following the small boat which would sometimes steal quietly off and down the bay. He also kept as close a watch as possible on the Portuxet farm, and was once severely bitten by the dogs the old Indian couple loosed upon him. 3. In 1766 came the final change in Joseph Kerwin. It was very sudden, and gained wide notice amongst the curious townsfolk, for the air of suspense and expectancy dropped like an old cloak, giving instant place to an ill-concealed exultation of perfect triumph. Kerwin seemed to have difficulty in restraining himself from public harangues on what he had found or learned or made but apparently the need of secrecy was greater than the longing to share his rejoicing, for no explanation was ever offered by him. It was after this transition, which appears to have come early in July, that the sinister scholar began to astonish people by his possession of information which only their long-dead ancestors would seem to be able to impart. But Kerwin's feverish secret activities by no means ceased with this change. On the contrary, they tended rather to increase— so that more and more of his shipping business was handled by the captains, whom he now bound to him by ties of fear as potent as those of bankruptcy had been. He altogether abandoned the slave trade, alleging that its profits were constantly decreasing. Every possible moment was spent at the Portuxet farm, though there were rumours now and then of his presence in places which, though not actually near graveyards, were yet so situated in relation to graveyards that thoughtful people wondered just how thorough the old merchant's change of habits really was. Ezra Whedon, though his periods of espionage were necessarily brief and intermittent on account of his sea-voyaging, had a vindictive persistence which the bulk of the practical townsfolk and farmers lacked, and subjected Cohen's affairs to a scrutiny such as they had never had before. Many of the odd manoeuvres of the strange merchant's vessels had been taken for granted on account of the unrest of the times, when every colonist seemed determined to resist the provisions of the Sugar Act, which hampered a prominent traffic. Smuggling and evasion were the rule in Narragansett Bay, and nocturnal landings of illicit cargoes were continuous commonplaces. But Whedon, night after night following the lighters or small sloops which he saw steal off from the Cohen warehouses at the Town Street docks, soon felt assured that it was not merely His Majesty's armed ships which the sinister skulker was anxious to avoid. Prior to the change in 1766, these boats had for the most part contained chained negroes, 
who were carried down and across the bay, and landed at an obscure point on the shore, just north of Port Tuxet, being afterward driven up the bluff and across country to the Kerwin farm, where they were locked in that enormous stone outbuilding, which had only high narrow slits for windows. After that change, however, the whole program was altered. Importation of slaves ceased at once, and for a time Kerwin abandoned his midnight sailings. Then, about the spring of 1767, a new policy appeared. Once more, the lighters grew wont to put out from the black, silent docks, and this time they would go down the bay some distance, perhaps as far as Namquit Point, where they would meet and receive cargo from strange ships of considerable size and widely varied appearance. Cohen sailors would then deposit this cargo at the usual point on the shore, and transport it overland to the farm, locking it in the same cryptical stone building which had formerly received the Negroes. The cargo consisted almost wholly of boxes and cases, of which a large proportion were oblong and heavy and disturbingly suggestive of coffins. Whedon always watched the farm with unremitting assiduity, visiting it each night for long periods, and seldom letting a week go by without a sight, except when the ground bore a footprint revealing snow. Even then he would often walk as close as possible in the travelled road, or on the ice of the neighbouring river, to see what tracks others might have left. Finding his own vigils interrupted by nautical duties, he hired a tavern companion named Eliezer Smith to continue the survey during his absences, and between them the two could have set in motion some extraordinary rumours. That they did not do so was only because they knew the effect of publicity would be to warn their quarry and make further progress impossible. Instead, they wished to learn something definite before taking any action. What they did learn must have been startling indeed, and Charles Ward spoke many times to his parents of his regret at Whedon's later burning of his notebooks. All that can be told of their discoveries is what Eliezer Smith jotted down in a non-too-coherent diary and what other diarists and letter-writers have timidly repeated from the statements which they finally made, and according to which the farm was only the outer shell of some vast and revolting menace, of a scope and depth too profound and intangible for more than shadowy comprehension. It is gathered that Whedon and Smith became early convinced that a great series of tunnels and catacombs, inhabited by a very sizable staff of persons, besides the old Indian and his wife, underlay the farm. The house was an old peaked relic of the middle seventeenth century, with enormous stack chimney and diamond-paned lattice windows, the laboratory being in a lean-to toward the north, where the roof came nearly to the ground. This building stood clear of any other, yet judging by the different voices heard at odd times within, it must have been accessible through secret passages beneath. These voices, before 1766, were mere mumblings and negro whisperings and frenzied screams, coupled with curious chants or invocations. After that date, however, they assumed a very singular and terrible cast, as they ran the gamut betwixt dronings of dull acquiescence and explosions of frantic pain or fury, rumblings of conversation and whines of entreaty, pantings of eagerness, and shouts of protest. They appeared to be in different languages, all known to Kerwin, whose rasping accents were frequently distinguishable in reply, reproof, or threatening. Sometimes it seemed that several persons must be in the house—Kerwin, certain captives, and the guards of those captives. 
There were voices of a sort that neither Whedon nor Smith had ever heard before, despite their wide knowledge of foreign parts, and many that they did seem to place as belonging to this or that nationality. The nature of the conversation seemed always a kind of catechism, as if Kerwin were extorting some sort of information from terrified or rebellious prisoners. Whedon had many verbatim reports of overheard scraps in his notebook, for English, French, and Spanish, which he knew, were frequently used, but of these nothing has survived. He did, however, say that besides a few ghoulish dialogues in which the past affairs of Providence families were concerned, most of the questions and answers he could understand were historical or scientific, occasionally pertaining to very remote places and ages. Once, for example, an alternately raging and sullen figure was questioned in French about the Black Prince's massacre at Limoges in 1370, as if there were some hidden reason which he ought to know. Cohen asked the prisoner, if prisoner it were, whether the order to slay was given because of the sign of the goat found on the altar in the ancient Roman crypt beneath the cathedral, or whether the dark man of the Otvien coven had spoken the three words. Failing to obtain replies, the Inquisitor had seemingly resorted to extreme means, for there was a terrific shriek, followed by silence and muttering, and a bumping sound. None of these colloquies were ever ocularly witnessed, since the windows were always heavily draped. Once, though, during a discourse in an unknown tongue, a shadow was seen on the curtain, which startled Whedon exceedingly, reminding him of one of the puppets in a show he had seen in the autumn of 1764, in Hacker's Hall, when a man from Germantown, Pennsylvania, had given a clever mechanical spectacle, advertised as a view of the famous city of Jerusalem, in which are represented Jerusalem, the Temple of Solomon, his royal throne, the noted towers and hills, likewise the sufferings of our Saviour from the Garden of Gethsemane, to the cross on the hill of Golgotha, an artful piece of statuary, worthy to be seen by the curious. It was on this occasion that the listener, who had crept close to the window of the front room whence the speaking proceeded, gave a start which roused the old Indian pair, and caused them to loose the dogs on him. After that, no more conversations were ever heard in the house, and Whedon and Smith concluded that Kerwin had transferred his field of action to regions below. That such regions in truth existed seemed amply clear from many things. Faint cries and groans unmistakably came up now and then from what appeared to be the solid earth in places far from any structure, whilst hidden in the bushes along the river bank in the rear, where the high ground sloped steeply down to the valley of the Portaxet, there was found an arched oaken door in a frame of heavy masonry, which was obviously an entrance to caverns within the hill. When or how these catacombs could have been constructed, Whedon was unable to say, but he frequently pointed out how easily the place might have been reached by bands of unseen workmen from the river. Joseph Cohen put his mongrel seamen to diverse uses indeed. During the heavy spring rains of 1769, the two watchers kept a sharp eye on the steep river bank, to see if any subterrene secrets might be washed to light, and were rewarded by the sight of a profusion of both human and animal bones in places where deep gullies had been worn in the banks. Naturally, there might be many explanations of such things in the rear of a stock farm, and in a locality where old Indian burying grounds were common, but Whedon and Smith drew their own inferences. It was in January 1770, 
whilst Whedon and Smith were still debating vainly on what, if anything, to think or do about the whole bewildering business, that the incident of the Forta laser occurred. Exasperated by the burning of the revenue sloop Liberty at Newport during the previous summer, the customs fleet under Admiral Wallace had adopted an increased vigilance concerning strange vessels, and on this occasion, His Majesty's armed schooner Signet, under Captain Charles Leslie, captured after a short pursuit one early morning the snow-fought a laser of Barcelona, Spain, under Captain Manuel Arruda, bound according to its log from Grand Cairo, Egypt, to Providence. When searched for contraband material, the ship revealed the astonishing fact that its cargo consisted exclusively of Egyptian mummies, consigned to Sailor A. B. C., who would come to remove his goods in a lighter just off Namquit Point, and whose identity Captain Arruda felt himself in honour bound not to reveal. The Vice-Admiralty Court at Newport, at a loss what to do in view of the non-contraband nature of the cargo on the one hand, and of the unlawful secrecy of the entry on the other hand, compromised on Collector Robinson's recommendation by freeing the ship, but forbidding it a port in Rhode Island waters. There were later rumours of its having been seen in Boston Harbour, though it never openly entered the port of Boston. This extraordinary incident did not fail of wide remark in Providence, and there were not many who doubted the existence of some connection between the cargo of mummies and the sinister Joseph Kerwin. His exotic studies and his curious chemical importations being common knowledge, and his fondness for graveyards being common suspicion, it did not take much imagination to link him with a freakish importation which could not conceivably have been destined for anyone else in the town. As if conscious of this natural belief, Kerwin took care to speak casually on several occasions of the chemical value of the balsams found in mummies, thinking perhaps that he might make the affair seem less unnatural, yet stopping just short of admitting his participation. Whedon and Smith, of course, felt no doubt whatsoever of the significance of the thing, and indulged in the wildest theories concerning Kerwin and his monstrous labours. The following spring, like that of the year before, had heavy rains, and the watchers kept careful track of the riverbank behind the Kerwin farm. Large sections were washed away, and a certain number of bones discovered, but no glimpse was afforded of any actual subterranean chambers or burrows. Something was rumoured, however, at the village of Portuxet, about a mile below, where the river flows in falls over a rocky terrace to join the placid landlocked cove. There, where quaint old cottages climb the hill from the rustic bridge, and fishing smacks lay anchored at their sleepy docks, a vague report went round of things that were floating down the river and flashing into sight for a minute as they went over the falls. Of course, the Portuxet is a long river which winds through many settled regions abounding in graveyards, and of course the spring rains had been very heavy, but the fisherfolk about the bridge did not like the wild way that one of the things stared as it shot down to the still water below, or the way that another half cried out, although its condition had greatly departed from that of objects which normally cry out. That rumour sent Smith, for Whedon was just then at sea, in haste to the river bank behind the farm, where surely enough there remained the evidences of an extensive cave-in. There was, however, no trace of a passage into the steep bank, for the miniature avalanche had left behind a solid wall of mixed earth and shrubbery from aloft. Smith went to the extent of some experimental digging, 
but was deterred by lack of success, or perhaps by fear of possible success. It is interesting to speculate on what the persistent and revengeful Whedon would have done had he been ashore at the time. 4. By the autumn of 1770, Whedon decided that the time was ripe to tell others of his discoveries, for he had a large number of facts to link together, and a second eyewitness to refute the possible charge that jealousy and vindictiveness had spurred his fancy. As his first confidant, he selected Captain James Mathewson of the Enterprise, who on the one hand knew him well enough not to doubt his veracity, and on the other hand was sufficiently influential in the town to be heard in turn with respect. The colloquy took place in an upper room of Sabin's tavern near the docks, with Smith present to corroborate virtually every statement, and it could be seen that Captain Mathewson was tremendously impressed. Like nearly everyone else in the town, he had had black suspicions of his own anent Joseph Kerwin. Hence, it needed only this confirmation and enlargement of data to convince him absolutely. At the end of the conference, he was very grave, and enjoined strict silence upon the two younger men. He would, he said, transmit the information separately to some ten or so of the most learned and prominent citizens of Providence, ascertaining their views and following whatever advice they might have to offer. Secrecy would probably be essential in any case, for this was no matter that the town constables or militia could cope with, and above all else the excitable crowd must be kept in ignorance, lest there be enacted in these already troublous times a repetition of that frightful Salem panic of less than a century before which had first brought Kerwin hither. The right persons to tell, he believed, would be Dr. Benjamin West, whose pamphlet on the late transit of Venus proved him a scholar and keen thinker, Reverend James Manning, president of the college which had just moved up from Warren, and was temporarily housed in the new King Street schoolhouse, awaiting the completion of its building on the hill above Presbyterian Lane. Ex-Governor Stephen Hopkins, who had been a member of the Philosophical Society at Newport, and was a man of very broad perceptions. John Carter, publisher of the Gazette, all four of the Brown brothers, John, Joseph, Nicholas, and Moses, who formed the recognized local magnates, and of whom Joseph was an amateur scientist of parts, old Dr. Jabez Bowen, whose erudition was considerable, and who had much first-hand knowledge of Cohen's odd purchases, and Captain Abraham Whipple, a privateersman of phenomenal boldness and energy who could be counted on to lead in any active measures needed. These men, if favorable, might eventually be brought together for collective deliberation, and with them would rest the responsibility of deciding whether or not to inform the governor of the colony, Joseph Wanton of Newport, before taking action. The mission of Captain Mathewson prospered beyond his highest expectations, for whilst he found one or two of the chosen confidants somewhat sceptical of the possible ghastly side of Whedon's tale, there was not one who did not think it necessary to take some sort of secret and coordinated action. Kerwin, it was clear, formed a vague potential menace to the welfare of the town and colony, and must be eliminated at any cost. Late in December 1770, a group of eminent townsmen met at the home of Stephen Hopkins, and debated tentative measures. Whedon's notes, which he had given to Captain Mathewson, were carefully read, and he and Smith were summoned to give testimony and end details. Something very like fear seized the whole assemblage before the meeting was over, though there ran through that fear a grim determination, 
which Captain Whipple's bluff and resonant profanity best expressed, they would not notify the governor, because a more than legal course seemed necessary. With hidden powers of uncertain extent apparently at his disposal, Cohen was not a man who could safely be warned to leave town. Nameless reprisals might ensue, and even if the sinister creature complied, the removal would be no more than the shifting of an unclean burden to another place. The times were lawless, and men who had flouted the king's revenue forces for years were not the ones to balk at sterner things when duty impelled. Cohen must be surprised at his portuxet farm by a large raiding party of seasoned privateersmen, and given one decisive chance to explain himself. If he proved a madman, amusing himself with shrieks and imaginary conversations in different voices, he would be properly confined. If something graver appeared, and if the underground horrors indeed turned out to be real, he and all with him must die. It could be done quietly, and even the widow and her father need not be told how it came about. While these serious steps were under discussion, there occurred in the town an incident so terrible and inexplicable that for a time little else was mentioned for miles around. In the middle of a moonlight January night, with heavy snow underfoot, there resounded over the river and up the hill a shocking series of cries which brought sleepy heads to every window, and people around Way Bosset Point saw a great white thing plunging frantically along the badly cleared space in front of the Turk's head. There was a baying of dogs in the distance, but this subsided as soon as the clamour of the awakened town became audible. Parties of men with lanterns and muskets hurried out to see what was happening, but nothing rewarded their search. The next morning, however, a giant, muscular body, stark naked, was found on the jams of ice around the southern piers of the Great Bridge, where the long dock stretched out beside Abbott's distill house, and the identity of this object became a theme for endless speculation and whispering. It was not so much the younger as the older folk who whispered, for only in the patriarchs did that rigid face with horror-bulging eyes strike any chord of memory. They, shaking as they did so, exchanged furtive murmurs of wonder and fear, for in those stiff, hideous features lay a resemblance so marvellous as to be almost an identity, and that identity was with a man who had died full fifty years before. Ezra Whedon was present at the finding, and remembering the baying of the night before, set out along way Bossett Street and across Muddy Dock Bridge, whence the sound had come. He had a curious expectancy, and was not surprised when, reaching the edge of the settled district where the street merged into the Portuxet Road, he came upon some very curious tracks in the snow. The naked giant had been pursued by dogs and many booted men, and the returning tracks of the hounds and their masters could be easily traced. They had given up the chase upon coming too near the town. Whedon smiled grimly, and as a perfunctory detail, traced the footprints back to their source. It was the Portuxet farm of Joseph Cohen, as he well knew it would be, and he would have given much had the yard been less confusingly trampled. As it was, he dared not seem too interested in full daylight. Dr. Bowen, to whom Whedon went at once with his report, performed an autopsy on the strange corpse and discovered peculiarities which baffled him utterly. The digestive tracts of the huge man seemed never to have been in use, whilst the whole skin had a coarse, loosely knit texture impossible to account for. Impressed by what the old men whispered of this body's likeness to the long-dead blacksmith Daniel Green, 
whose great-grandson, Aaron Hoppen, was a supercargo in Cohen's employ, Whedon asked casual questions till he found where Green was buried. That night, a party of ten visited the Old North Burying Ground opposite Herondon's Lane and opened a grave. They found it vacant, precisely as they had expected. Meanwhile, arrangements had been made with the post-riders to intercept Joseph Cohen's mail, and shortly before the incident of the naked body, there was found a letter from one Jebediah Orne of Salem, which made the cooperating citizens think deeply. Parts of it, copied and preserved in the private archives of the Smith family, where Charles Ward found it, ran as follows. I delight that you continue in your getting at old matters in your way, and do not think better was done at Mr. Hutchinson's in Salem Village. Certainly, there was nothing but your liveliest awfulness in that which H. raised up from what he could gather only a part of. What you sent did not work, whether because of anything missing, or because your words were not right from my speaking or your copying. I alone am at a loss. I have not your chemical art to follow Borellus, and all myself confounded by your seventh book of your Necronomicon that you recommend. But I would have you observe what was told to us about taking care whom to call up, for you are sensible what Mr. Mather writ in your Magnalia of, and can judge how truly that horrendous thing is reported. I say to you again, do not call up any that you cannot put down, by the which I mean, any that can in turn call up somewhat against you, whereby your powerfulest devices may not be of use. Ask her the lesser, lest the greater shall not wish to answer, and shall command more than you. I was frighted when I read of your knowing what Ben Zariatnamik had in his ebony box, for I was conscious who must have told you, and again I ask that you shall write me as Jebediah and not Simon. In this community, a man may not live too long, and you know my plan by which I came back as my son. I am desirous you will acquaint me with what your black man learnt from Sylvanus Cacidius in your vault under your Roman wall, and will be obliged for your lending of your MS you speak of. Another and unsigned letter from Philadelphia provoked equal thought, especially for the following passage. I will observe what you say respecting the sending of accounts only by your vessels, but can not always be certain when to expect them. In the matter spoke of, I require only one more thing, but wish to be sure I apprehend you exactly. You inform me that no part must be missing if the finest effects are to be had, but you cannot but know how hard it is to be sure. It seems a great hazard and burthen to take away the whole box, and in town, i.e. St. Peter's, St. Paul's, St. Mary's, or Christchurch, it can scarce be done at all. But I know what imperfections were in the one I raised up October last, and how many live specimens you were forced to employ before you hit upon the right mode in the year 1766, so will be guided by you in all matters. I am impatient for your brig, and inquire daily at Mr. Biddle's wharf. A third suspicious letter was in an unknown tongue, and even an unknown alphabet. In the Smith diary found by Charles Ward, a single oft-repeated combination of characters is clumsily copied, and authorities at Brown University have pronounced the alphabet Amaric or Abyssinian, although they do not recognize the word. None of these epistles was ever delivered to Kerwin, though the disappearance of Jebediah Orne from Salem, as recorded shortly afterward, shewed that the Providence men took certain quiet steps. The Pennsylvania Historical Society also has some curious letters received by Dr. Shippen regarding the presence of an unwholesome character in Philadelphia. 
But more decisive steps were in the air, and it is in the secret assemblages of sworn and tested sailors and faithful old privateersmen in the brown warehouses by night that we must look for the main fruits of Whedon's disclosures. Slowly and surely, a plan of campaign was under development which would leave no trace of Joseph Kerwin's noxious mysteries. Kerwin, despite all precautions, apparently felt that something was in the wind, for he was now remarked to wear an unusually worried look. His coach was seen at all hours in the town and on the poor Taxit road, and he dropped little by little the air of forced geniality with which he had latterly sought to combat the town's prejudice. The nearest neighbours to his farm, the Fenners, one night remarked a great shaft of light shooting into the sky from some aperture in the roof of that cryptical stone building with the high, excessively narrow windows, an event which they quickly communicated to John Brown in Providence. Mr. Brown had become the executive leader of the select group bent on Cohen's extirpation, and had informed the Fenners that some action was about to be taken. This he deemed needful because of the impossibility of their not witnessing the final raid, and he explained his course by saying that Kerwin was known to be a spy of the customs officers at Newport, against whom the hand of every Providence shipper, merchant, and farmer was openly or clandestinely raised. Whether the ruse was wholly believed by neighbours who had seen so many queer things is not certain, but at any rate, the Fenners were willing to connect any evil with a man of such queer ways. To them, Mr. Brown had entrusted the duty of watching the Cohen farmhouse, and of regularly reporting every incident which took place there. 5. The probability that Cohen was on guard and attempting unusual things, as suggested by the odd shaft of light, precipitated at last the action so carefully devised by the band of serious citizens. According to the Smith Diary, a company of about one hundred men met at 10 p.m. on Friday, April 12, 1771, in the great room of Thurston's Tavern at the Sign of the Golden Lion, on Way Bosset Point across the bridge. Of the guiding group of prominent men, in addition to the leader John Brown, there were present Dr. Bowen, with his case of surgical instruments, President Manning, without the great periwig, the largest in the colonies, for which he was noted, Governor Hopkins, wrapped in his dark cloak and accompanied by his seafaring brother, Isak, whom he had initiated at the last moment with the permission of the rest, John Carter, Captain Mathewson, and Captain Whipple, who was to lead the actual raiding party. These chiefs conferred apart in a rear chamber, after which Captain Whipple emerged to the great room and gave the gathered seamen their last oaths and instructions. Eliezer Smith was with the leaders, as they sat in the rear apartment, awaiting the arrival of Ezra Whedon, whose duty was to keep track of Kerwin and report the departure of his coach for the farm. About ten-thirty, a heavy rumble was heard on the great bridge, followed by the sound of a coach in the street outside, and at that hour there was no need of waiting for Whedon, in order to know that the doomed man had set out for his last night of unhallowed wizardry. A moment later, as the receding coach clattered faintly over the muddy dock bridge, Whedon appeared, and the raiders fell silently into military order in the street, shouldering the firelocks, fowling pieces, or whaling harpoons which they had with them. Whedon and Smith were with the party, and of the deliberating citizens, there were present for active service Captain Whipple, the leader, Captain Isaac Hopkins, John Carter, 
President Manning, Captain Mathewson, and Dr. Bowen, together with Moses Brown, who had come up at the eleventh hour, though absent from the preliminary session in the tavern. All these freemen and their hundred sailors began the long march without delay, grim and a trifle apprehensive, as they left the muddy dock behind, and mounted the gentle rise of Broad Street toward the Portuxet Road. Just beyond Elder Snow's church, some of the men turned back to take a parting look at Providence, lying outspread under the early spring stars. Steeples and gables rose dark and shapely, and salt breezes swept up gently from the cove north of the bridge. Vega was climbing above the great hill across the water, whose crest of trees was broken by the roofline of the unfinished college edifice. At the foot of that hill, and along the narrow mounting lanes of its side, the old town dreamed. Old Providence, for whose safety and sanity so monstrous and colossal a blasphemy was about to be wiped out. An hour and a quarter later, the raiders arrived, as previously agreed, at the Fenner farmhouse, where they heard a final report on their intended victim. He had reached his farm over half an hour before, and the strange light had soon afterward shot once into the sky, but there were no lights in any visible windows. This was always the case of late. Even as this news was given, another great glare arose toward the south, and the party realized that they had indeed come close to the scene of awesome and unnatural wonders. Captain Whipple now ordered his force to separate into three divisions, one of twenty men under Eliezer Smith, to strike across to the shore and guard the landing-place against possible reinforcements for Kerwin until summoned by a messenger for desperate service, a second of twenty men under Captain Isaac Hopkins to steal down into the river valley behind the Kerwin farm and demolish with axes or gunpowder the oaken door in the high, steep bank, and the third to close in on the house and adjacent buildings themselves. Of this division, one-third was to be led by Captain Mathewson, to the cryptical stone edifice with high narrow windows, another third to follow Captain Whipple himself to the main farmhouse, and the remaining third to preserve a circle around the whole group of buildings until summoned by a final emergency signal. The river party would break down the hillside door at the sound of a single whistle blast, then waiting and capturing anything which might issue from the regions within. At the sound of two whistle-blasts, it would advance through the aperture to oppose the enemy, or join the rest of the raiding contingent. The party at the stone building would accept these respective signals in an analogous manner, forcing an entrance at the first, and at the second descending whatever passage into the ground might be discovered, and joining the general or focal warfare expected to take place within the caverns. A third or emergency signal of three blasts would summon the immediate reserve from its general guard duty, its twenty men dividing equally and entering the unknown depths through both farmhouse and stone building. Captain Whipple's belief in the existence of catacombs was absolute, and he took no alternative into consideration when making his plans. He had with him a whistle of great power and shrillness, and did not fear any upsetting or misunderstanding of signals. The final reserve at the landing, of course, was nearly out of the whistle's range, hence would require a special messenger if needed for help. Moses Brown and John Carter went with Captain Hopkins to the riverbank, while President Manning was detailed with Captain Mathewson to the stone building. Dr. Bowen, with Ezra Whedon, remained in Captain Whipple's party, which was to storm the farmhouse itself. The attack was to begin as soon as a messenger from Captain Hopkins had joined Captain Whipple 
to notify him of the river party's readiness. The leader would then deliver the loud single blast, and the various advance parties would commence their simultaneous attack on three points. Shortly before 1 a.m., the three divisions left the Fenner farmhouse, one to guard the landing, another to seek the river valley and the hillside door, and the third to subdivide and attend to the actual buildings of the Cohen farm. Eliezer Smith, who accompanied the shore-guarding party, records in his diary an uneventful march and a long wait on the bluff by the bay, broken once by what seemed to be the distant sound of the signal whistle, and again by a peculiar muffled blend of roaring and crying and a powder blast which seemed to come from the same direction. Later on, one man thought he caught some distant gunshots, and still later, Smith himself felt the throb of titanic and thunderous words resounding in upper air. It was just before dawn that a single haggard messenger, with wild eyes and a hideous unknown odour about his clothing, appeared and told the detachment to disperse quietly to their homes, and never again think or speak of the night's doings or of him who had been Joseph Kerwin. Something about the bearing of the messenger carried a conviction which his mere words could never have conveyed, for though he was a seaman well known to many of them, there was something obscurely lost or gained in his soul which set him for evermore apart. It was the same later on, when they met other old companions who had gone into that zone of horror. Most of them had lost or gained something imponderable and indescribable. They had seen or heard or felt something which was not for human creatures, and could not forget it. From them, there was never any gossip, for to even the commonest of mortal instincts, there are terrible boundaries. And from that single messenger, the party at the shore caught a nameless awe, which almost sealed their own lips. Very few are the rumours which ever came from any of them, and Eliezer Smith's diary is the only written record which has survived from that whole expedition which set forth from the sign of the golden lion under the stars. Charles Ward, however, discovered another vague sidelight in some Fenner correspondence, which he found in New London, where he knew another branch of the family had lived. It seems that the Fenners, from whose house the doomed farm was distantly visible, had watched the departing columns of raiders, and had heard very clearly the angry barking of the Kerwin dogs, followed by the first shrill blast which precipitated the attack. This blast had been followed by a repetition of the great shaft of light from the stone building, and, in another moment, after a quick sounding of the second signal ordering a general invasion, there had come a subdued prattle of musketry, followed by a horrible roaring cry, which the correspondent, Luke Fenner, had represented in his epistle by the characters War Roar. This cry, however, had possessed a quality which no mere writing could convey, and the correspondent mentions that his mother fainted completely at the sound. It was later repeated less loudly, and further, but more muffled evidences of gunfire ensued, together with a loud explosion of powder from the direction of the river. About an hour afterward, all the dogs began to bark frightfully, and there were vague ground rumblings so marked that the candlesticks tottered on the mantelpiece. A strong smell of sulphur was noted, and Luke Fenner's father declared that he heard the third or emergency whistle signal, though the others failed to detect it. Muffled musketry sounded again, followed by a deep scream, less piercing but even more horrible than those which had preceded it, a kind of 
throaty, nastily plastic cough or gurgle whose quality as a scream must have come more from its continuity and psychological import than from its actual acoustic value. Then the flaming thing burst into sight at a point where the Kerwin farm ought to lie, and the human cries of desperate and frightened men were heard. Muskets flashed and cracked, and the flaming thing fell to the ground. A second flaming thing appeared, and a shriek of human origin was plainly distinguished. Fenner wrote that he could even gather a few words belched in frenzy. Almighty, protect thy lamb! Then there were more shots, and the second flaming thing fell. After that came silence for about three quarters of an hour, at the end of which time little Arthur Fenner, Luke's brother, exclaimed that he saw a red fog going up to the stars from the accursed farm in the distance. No one but the child can testify to this, but Luke admits the significant coincidence implied by the panic of almost convulsive fright, which at the same moment arched the backs and stiffened the fur of the three cats then within the room. Five minutes later, a chill wind blew up, and the air became suffused with such an intolerable stench that only the strong freshness of the sea could have prevented its being noticed by the shore party or by any wakeful souls in Portaxet village. This stench was nothing which any of the Fenners had ever encountered before, and produced a kind of clutching, amorphous fear beyond that of the tomb or the charnel house. Close upon it came the awful voice which no hapless hearer will ever be able to forget. It thundered out of the sky like a doom, and windows rattled as its echoes died away. It was deep and musical, powerful as a bass organ, but evil as the forbidden books of the Arabs. What it said no man can tell, for it spoke in an unknown tongue, but this is the writing Luke Fenner set down to portray the demoniac intonations. Dis mis, jeshet, bone, dosefi, duvemar, and nitamos. Not till the year 1919 did any soul link this crude transcript with anything else in mortal knowledge, but Charles Ward paled as he recognized what Mirandola had denounced in shudders as the ultimate horror among black magic's incantations. An unmistakably human shout or deep chorus scream seemed to answer this malign wonder from the Cohen farm, after which the unknown stench grew complex with an added odor equally intolerable. A wailing distinctly different from the scream now burst out, and was protracted allulently in rising and falling paroxysms. At times it became almost articulate, though no auditor could trace any definite words, and at one point it seemed to verge toward the confines of diabolic and hysterical laughter, then a yell of utter, ultimate fright and stark madness wrenched from scores of human throats, a yell which came strong and clear, despite the depth from which it must have burst, after which darkness and silence ruled all things. Spirals of acrid smoke ascended to blot out the stars, though no flames appeared and no buildings were observed to be gone or injured on the following day. Toward dawn, two frightened messengers with monstrous and unplaceable odors saturating their clothing knocked at the Fenner door and requested a keg of rum, for which they paid very well indeed. One of them told the family that the affair of Joseph Kerwin was over, and that the events of the night were not to be mentioned again. Arrogant as the order seemed, the aspect of him who gave it took away all resentment and lent it a fearsome authority, so that only these furtive letters of Luke Fenner 
which he urged his Connecticut relative to destroy, remained to tell what was seen and heard. The non-compliance of that relative, whereby the letters were saved after all, has alone kept the matter from a merciful oblivion. Charles Ward had one detail to add, as a result of a long canvas of Port Taxit residents for ancestral traditions. Old Charles Slocum of that village said that there was known to his grandfather a queer rumour concerning a charred, distorted body found in the fields a week after the death of Joseph Kerwin was announced. What kept the talk alive was the notion that this body, so far as could be seen in its burnt and twisted condition, was neither thoroughly human nor wholly allied to any animal which Portaxit folk had ever seen or read about. 6. Not one man who participated in that terrible raid could ever be induced to say a word concerning it, and every fragment of the vague data which survives comes from those outside the final fighting party. There is something frightful in the care with which these actual raiders destroyed each scrap which bore the least allusion to the matter. Eight sailors had been killed, but although their bodies were not produced, their families were satisfied with the statement that a clash with customs officers had occurred. The same statement also covered the numerous cases of wounds, all of which were extensively bandaged and treated only by Dr. Jabez Bowen, who had accompanied the party. Hardest to explain was the nameless odour clinging to all the raiders, a thing which was discussed for weeks. Of the citizen leaders, Captain Whipple and Moses Brown were most severely hurt, and letters of their wives testify the bewilderment which their reticence and close guarding of their bandages produced. Psychologically, every participant was aged, sobered, and shaken. It is fortunate that they were all strong men of action, and simple, orthodox religionists, who with more subtle introspectiveness and mental complexity, they would have fared ill indeed. President Manning was the most disturbed, but even he outgrew the darkest shadow, and smothered memories in prayers. Every man of those leaders had a stirring part to play in later years, and it is perhaps fortunate that this is so. Little more than a twelve-month afterward, Captain Whipple led the mob who burnt the revenue ship Gaspé, and in this bold act we may trace one step in the blotting out of unwholesome images. There was delivered to the widow of Joseph Kerwin a sealed leaden coffin of curious design, obviously found ready on the spot when needed, in which she was told her husband's body lay. He had, it was explained, been killed in a customs battle about which it is not politic to give details. More than this, no tongue ever uttered of Joseph Kerwin's end, and Charles Ward had only a single hint wherewith to construct a theory. This hint was the merest thread, a shaky underscoring of a passage in Jebediah Orne's confiscated letter to Kerwin, as partly copied in Ezra Whedon's handwriting. The copy was found in the possession of Smith's descendants, and we are left to decide whether Whedon gave it to his companion after the end, as a mute clue to the abnormality which had occurred, or whether, as is more probable, Smith had it before, and added the underscoring himself from what he had managed to extract from his friend by shrewd guessing and adroit cross-questioning. The underlined passage is merely this, I say to you again, do not call up any that you cannot put down, by the which I mean, any that can in turn call up somewhat against you, whereby your powerfulest devices may not be of use. Ask her the lesser, lest the greater shall not wish to answer, and shall command more than you. 
In the light of this passage, and reflecting on what last unmentionable allies a beaten man might try to summon in his direst extremity, Charles Ward may well have wondered whether any citizen of Providence killed Joseph Kerwin. The deliberate effacement of every memory of the dead man from Providence life and annals was vastly aided by the influence of the raiding leaders. They had not at first meant to be so thorough, and had allowed the widow and her father and child to remain in ignorance of the true conditions, but Captain Tillinghast was an astute man, and soon uncovered enough rumours to wet his horror and cause him to demand that his daughter and granddaughter change their name, burn the library and all remaining papers, and chisel the inscription from the slate slab above Joseph Kerwin's grave. He knew Captain Whipple well, and probably extracted more hints from that bluff mariner than anyone else ever gained respecting the end of the accused sorcerer. From that time on, the obliteration of Kerwin's memory became increasingly rigid, extending at last by common consent even to the town records and files of the Gazette. It can be compared in spirit only to the hush that lay on Oscar Wilde's name for a decade after his disgrace, and in extent only to the fate of that sinful king of Runazar in Lord Dunsany's tale, whom the gods decided must not only cease to be, but must cease ever to have been. Mrs. Tillinghast, as the widow became known after 1772, sold the house in Olney Court, and resided with her father in Powers Lane, till her death in 1817. The farm at Port Tuxet, shunned by every living soul, remained to moulder through the years, and seemed to decay with unaccountable rapidity. By 1780, only the stone and brickwork were standing, and by 1800, even these had fallen to shapeless heaps. None ventured to pierce the tangled shrubbery on the river-bank behind which the hillside door may have lain, nor did any try to frame a definite image of the scenes amidst which Joseph Kerwin departed from the horrors he had wrought. Only robust old Captain Whipple was heard by alert listeners to mutter once in a while to himself, "'Hark's on that, but he had no business to laugh while he screamed. "'Twas as though the damned had summoned up his sleeve, "'for half a crown I'd burn his house.' 